Disciples Church is a church plant in Canyon, Texas. We are a church without walls that is focused on evangelism and discipleship. We believe that we are saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, and are on mission with Jesus. Join us as we make disciples verse by verse. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 31. On that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. And so they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion, and so they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified, and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. This is God's word. Well, Tim Herrera from the New York Times recently wrote an article titled, "When you start thing, Why You Start Things You'll Never Finish. The article caught my mind because of a conversation the guys had a few weeks ago. Like, why do we say we're, we're going to start things like reading my Bible, but we never actually do it? Or we start it just for a few days and then we stop. Well, in the article, Tim says, we stop doing things we really want to do. Um, it's just that life gets in our way, and, and we only have so many hours in the day, um, and so we skip it. And, and I guess that sounds pretty familiar. So why is that, Tim asks. Well, quoting him, he said, There's a predisposition of humans to underestimate the time it takes to complete a thing. Um, call, it's called the planning fallacy, which leads to an overcommitment to opportunities at the expense of actually completing them. End of quote. So Tim says, This principle is so deep in us that we don't even know we're doing it when we do it. Quoting him again, he says, Compounding the problem is that, is, is that starting a new thing can be exciting, um, which leads to a loop in which our brains are rewarded for starting something new because it feels good. We're built to crave the feeling. But once the excitement fades, we tend to lose interest in those things that we don't truly care about, and so they toil away half-completed, nagging at us and adding more stress. It's not easy to break this cycle, but it can be broken. What's the solution? And quoting Tim, he says, You have to count the cost. Count the cost. Well, in in the article, Tim says, like, counting the cost is when you sit down and you estimate the time it will take to complete a task. And then if you you really want to complete it, you multiply that number by three. He says this is the way that you count the cost. You have to know how much time it's actually going to take to complete the task. And then after you do that, you're going to have to have somebody hold you accountable. Well, you see, I think Tim is on to something. I think we often don't estimate um, rightly how long and how hard discipleship will be. Uh, like we begin down the pathway and then we quick, quickly run out of time. Um, and so we don't meet in our discipleship groups or we don't read our Bible or we don't have private devotional time with God. And if you're like me, I often use the same excuse. I just got busy or life gets in the way or th- there's only so many hours in the day. And so in a similar way, the disciples are no different. They did not estimate how hard and how difficult it would be to follow Jesus. They did not count the cost correctly. They thought following him would be easy. They thought they would have favor with their family and the religious elites, but instead they found that following Jesus would be very difficult. And so this morning, Jesus is going to rebuke them. Not only is he going to rebuke them, but he's also going to rebuke the wind and the seas as well. And so here is the big idea before we start. Storms reveal our faith or our lack of faith. Let me give it to you again. Storms reveal our faith or our lack of faith. 
You see, many start down the path of discipleship without first counting the cost. Many start down the path of discipleship expecting that it's going to be easy, but then they find out it's not. And so, for instance, many of those who say they follow Jesus, like they, they follow him without first really considering what that means. Like, if you're really going to follow Jesus as a disciple, it's going to cost you a lot of things. It's going to cost you your time, your energy, your money, your hopes, your future. It's going to cost you everything. Well, we're going to look at that this morning in Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41, as the storm reveals the disciples' faith or their lack of faith. So the outline this morning is as follows. The scene is set in verses 35 through 38 with the storm. And then Jesus delivers two rebukes in 39 and 41. One rebuke will go to the sea and the winds, and the other will go to his disciples. So we are now beginning a new section in Mark, and in Mark chapter 4, 35 through chapter 5, verse 43, is one literary unit um, where Mark reports three miracles that are performed by Jesus. He reveals Jesus' sovereignty over the sea, over the wind, over demons, over death. And, And this unit has been brought together as a literary unit by Mark to illustrate that Jesus has the power of God, and he can use that power against his enemies. So first we encounter a cosmic collision between Jesus and Satan in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. In the first scene of these stories, the sea is to be understood as a manifestation of the realm of death, and with the overtones and waves that mimic demonic behavior. We'll see that in a minute. And and this in turn will prepare you for the account of Jesus healing the demoniac in Gersau, which in turn leads to Jesus bringing back a girl from the dead. In all three narratives, the storm at sea, the healing of the demoniac, and the resurrection of the little girl, they all have parallels that are too obvious um, to, to not be incidental, or to be more than incidental. You see, the disciples are afraid in the first story of death, and so they cry out, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Which then naturally leads him to taking care of a man who has been hurting himself, trying to kill himself, which then naturally leads to a little girl who has died. In all three stories, in all three events, Jesus will enter the realm of death as the Lord of life and defeat it. Once again, let me give you our big idea before we begin. Storms reveal our faith or lack of faith. You see, many, many Christians will start down the path of discipleship without first counting the cost. Many will start down the path of discipleship expecting it to be easy. You just got to go to church and hang out with Christian people. But many don't actually understand that they will soon be facing death and, and many hardships and trials and storms in their life. You may encounter death like these three stories right, through, through a natural disaster or through the demoniac or through uh, maybe you lose a loved one. Like, we're all going to encounter death, and that's not going to make it easy. You see, in each of these stories, each of these scenes, the reader is forced to make a decision. They, you must accept who Jesus is or you must reject him. You see, in the scene, the disciples must choose. Do they have the faith to follow Jesus or will they reject him whenever death is at their door? Right? Or we'll, we'll, see the, we'll see the demoniac. He must choose. He must accept Jesus or reject him. And then likewise, we'll see Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman. They must choose as well between faith and despair or between trusting and, reject, and rejecting. And even Jesus' own hometown, Nazareth, they must choose between belief and disbelief, between rejection of Jesus and acceptance of him, between faith faith and no faith. You see, these stories are meant to take you and and, and pull you in and make you make a decision. Will you have faith in Jesus in the midst of a storm whenever things get hard, or will you not? You see, these disciples, these disciples are stepping one foot closer to faith in verse 41 when they first begin to understand the fear of the Lord, right? Because Jesus is going to ask them, like, like, uh, he's going to ask them, like, in, in verse 40, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? So how, how can Jesus have the power over nature? 
the power over demons, the power over illness, and the power over death itself. The question must be put to you, who then is Jesus? Who is this? And and so we must wrestle with this question, and we must make a decision. Are we going to place our faith in Jesus, even whenever bad things are happening, or will, will, will we reject him? Well, let us now begin by looking at the text, uh, Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. Well, this story, um, the story of calming uh, this wind and seas is also found in the other Gospels in Matthew chapter 8, 23 through 27, and in Luke chapter 8, 22 through 25. This story in Mark, though, is full of vivid details. These details are omitted in the other Gospel accounts. That's really interesting. You should pay attention to that. And see, this would cause the reader to understand that the writer was probably there or he had a very good eyewitness who was actually there when these things are happening. Notice how Mark notes the time of day in verse 35. And then he notes the reference of the disciples taking Jesus from the boat in verse 36. And then he notes the details of the waves breaking over the boat in verse 37. The description of Jesus sleeping on the cushion in verse 38, that that is so interesting. You see the reference to the disciples' attitude as they accuse Jesus in verse 38. Don't you even care that we're gonna die? And then the very precise language that Jesus uses in verse 39 is captured in detail as well. Silence, be still. These are all descriptions and details that tell us that the author, Mark, probably obtained this record firsthand. Most scholars believe that Peter was his friend and Peter is the source of this very account. So Peter was obviously there, that makes sense. Well, the details of the story are not randomly chosen. These details exhibit a sophisticated and theological thought that actually reflects Jonah chapter 1. You could actually read Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41, and lay Jonah chapter 1 on top of it, and you would find some very striking similarities. In much the same way, um, we're going to see that God will take this text and lay it on top of us, and let us find some, some similarities as well. You see, storms will reveal our faith or our lack of faith. See, have the storms in your life revealed your faith or your lack of faith? Are you closer to God after the storm, or are you farther away? Storms reveal our faith, our lack of faith, or our faith. See, many start down the path of following Jesus or discipleship without first counting the cost, without first really sitting down and understanding that it's not going to be easy. You see, many don't expect to find themselves in the middle of a storm when following Jesus. Many think they're going to find an easy life. Well, that's not true. Let us begin by examining the details of this story in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side. Notice the command. Why are they going to the other side? Well, no doubt Jesus is going to the other side to continue to preach the gospel in other towns, just like he said he would in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. So they must go. They must go. And so Jesus gives the command. And without hesitation, I want you to see this, without hesitation, they start strong. They get into the boat and they're off they go. Look at verse 36. So right away, so they left the crowd and took him along because he was in the boat and other boats were with him. Notice they went right away. They began. They were excited. The storm has not hit yet. They think their discipleship is going to be easy. They just got to get in the boat and go. But the storm will reveal their faith in God or their lack of faith in God. Here's something kind of interesting. In, in 1986, the whole of the fishing boat was found, of a fishing boat was found on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about five miles south of Capernaum. The boat was about 25 or 26.5 feet long, 7.5 feet wide, and about 4.5 feet high. Both the force, uh, the, the fore and the aft sections of the boat were covered with a deck, providing a space to sit down or lie down. And this boat was propelled by all by by four um, rowers, two per side and had a total capacity of about 15 persons. This would have been the kind of boat that they would have launched out in. The disciples and Jesus launched eastward in a boat like this one. 
You see, Mark doesn't, um, does not explicitly state the purpose for them leaving, but we know from Mark chapter 1, verse 38, that Jesus said he was going to go to other towns to preach the gospel. And so the Sea of Galilee lies nearly 700 feet below sea level in a basin that is surrounded by mountains and hills where the eastern coast receives a lot of precipitation. About 30 miles northeast lies Mount Hermon, and that rises to 9,200 feet above sea level. So imagine this, the interchange between the cold air from the mountain, from Mount Hermon, and the warm air from the rising sea make for furious and severe weather conditions. And so, so we, nor the reader, should be surprised about the storm in verse 37. Right, it says a great windstorm arose. We should not be surprised by that. And likewise, the disciples, they shouldn't have been surprised by that. After all, they, most of them grew up as fishermen on that lake in boats. So Jesus, listen, Jesus knew exactly where he was taking his disciples to. He was leading them into a very dangerous and stormy condition to reveal their faith or their lack of faith. Jesus' disciples, his followers, he takes them on mission but it's not going to be an easy one. He leads them right into danger. But why? You see, often this is true of us in our own discipleship as well. As soon as we step out to advance the gospel, we will walk right into a storm. And so life will get hard. Difficult things will happen. And that will either reveal our faith or our lack of faith. But notice that this isn't just any kind of windstorm. Look at verse 37. It says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat. A great windstorm. In the Greek, the word great windstorm actually means hurricane. Can you think about this just for a minute? The great windstorm is such a furious squall. It has a striking similarity to a hurricane. And this, like I said, is laid on top of Jonah chapter 1 to give more detail. This is a very, very strikingly similar story. There was a violent storm that came upon on Jonah's ship in Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. And so Jonah went into the bowels of the ship in Jonah chapter 1 verse 5 to sleep. And deep sleep fell upon him. And notice how this story goes on. The storm starts and then we find Jesus in verse 38 sleeping in the stern. Well, this scene is meant to draw you in. Notice the difference in Jesus and his disciples. The disciples are terrified. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the storm, they're terrified. But Jesus is sleeping in the boat. See, he shows that he has a complete trust in God in the middle of the storm. But the disciples don't. The storm has revealed Jesus' faith, and it has revealed the disciples' lack of faith. You see, just like Jonah, the disciples, some of them are veteran seamen, and they know. They know the sea better than anybody else, and they are terrified by the ferocity of this storm. This is a bad storm. We'll see the captain in the book of Jonah actually wakes up Jonah, and likewise, the, dis- the disciples wake up Jesus. And, and the disciples wake him up, and they ask him a question, which is not actually a question at all. It's actually an accusation. Look at verse 38. They say, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care that we're going to die? And so, so they're not, it's not questioning him. They're accusing him. You don't care. You commanded us to go with you, to go on mission, and now we're here, and now we're about to die. Don't you care? Notice the details in their language. The words, the tone, the rudeness of the disciples reflect their frustration and desperation, which is actually a revelation of their lack of faith. Why, Jesus? Like, why? You said, follow you, and you said, and now this is happening. Bad things are happening. Why should we follow you? Well, their question is not a question. It's actually an accusation. It's another attack. See, first, Jesus was attacked by his own family who tried to restrain him and arrest him. And then he was attacked by the religious leaders who said he was empowered by the devil to do the work of the devil. And now the disciples are attacking him and they're saying, you don't care. But Jesus, Jesus was not going to let his disciples off the hook this time. Right, They are not going to die right now for there was still work to be done on the other side of the sea. He's not going to allow the water to kill them. He was testing their faith. 
You see, storms and difficulties reveal our faith or our lack of faith. In our story this morning, the storm has made it clear. The disciples lack faith. Look at this in verse 40. He said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? Well, this question comes upon the hills of a strange rebuke. Look at verse 39. He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea. Notice that he said something to the sea. Silence, be still. Silence, be still. And immediately there was a great calm that swept over the sea. That's interesting words, Jesus. Why silence? Well, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And and just like when Jonah was thrown overboard, the sea became calm. It became calm here. Listen, the sea listens to its master. You see, Jesus can bring um, the sea into peace, and not by prayer or by asking, but by command. With the authoritative word, be silent and still, the sea must bow before its creator, just like God, who produced order um, from chaos in the beginning in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So why the command to be silent? To be silent, Mark's description of stilling the storm is meant to bring intelligent qualities like communication to the nature of the sea. Commentators say in verse 39, this is really fascinating, James Edwards said this in his commentator in verse 39, he said it's actually a spoken word of exorcism. The wind is rebuked with a Greek word that has already been used twice by Mark in chapter 1 verse 25 and in chapter 3 verse 2 to rebuke evil spirits and demons. The way he rebukes the wind is the way that he rebukes demons. You see, according to James Edwards, the word is a technical term in Jewish exorcisms for the command for the commanding word uttered by God or his spokesman by which evil powers are brought into submission and that and, and the way is prepared for the establishment of God's righteous rule in the world end of quote Jesus listen Jesus is performing an exorcism the sea is trying to stop him from going on mission and now he is going to stop it and say silence be still and notice that they obey him the Greek word um, the Greek word being used here occurs in the second person this gets really fascinating this isn't going to mean much to you until you understand it the Greek word that's being used here in the second person is the second person singular which means to you and to me that Jesus is addressing a personal being Jesus has just spoken to the sea as a demonic personal being, and they must bow before him. You see, Jesus, remember Jesus told us this would happen in in chapter 3, verse 27. Jesus told us that that he would enter the strong man's house, the devil, and tie him up. And so it has began. Jesus is entering Satan's domain to tie him up. He is entering the sea, the land of the dead. And and then he will go on to the land of the Gerasenes for exorcism. And then he will reach out into death and bring the little girl back to life. It has begun. Jesus is entering the strong man's house and he is going to war. Jesus has the power over all things. You see, this description of Jesus rebuking the storm is an exorcism where he is actually restraining the strong man, Satan, for the ultimate purpose of expanding his kingdom through the gospel. You see, one would think, you see, really one would think that after the storm was calm, the disciples would have gone from from having fear to having no fear because now the storm was calmed. But instead, what they actually have is more fear. They have greater fear, listen, because they have stepped into the presence of the holy. That is what has just happened. Instead of being relieved of their fear, they have increased their fear because now they have stepped in front of the one who can make the sea bow before him. In the final allusion um, in the story of Jonah that's found in verse 41 here, Mark says the disciples are terrified at the calming of the storm. Look at verse 41. And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? 
You see in Jonah chapter 1, verses 10 and 16, the same thing happens to the pagan sailors. They get terrified. When the sailors recognize that they are in the presence of God working a miracle of calming the sea, it makes them want to offer a sacrifice. And now the disciples have found themselves in the presence of the holy God, Jesus, and they are terrified. And see, often, this is what you need to understand, often in the storm, whenever we face our storms, whatever they are, we walk face to face with God, and it's absolutely terrifying. You see, storms will reveal our faith or our lack of faith, and that will lead us into something else. Look at verse 41. And they were terrified, and they asked one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? You see, often in Mark, whenever the person or the work of Jesus is revealed like this, it is for our discipleship. You see, Jesus has just revealed himself as the one who can make the sea bow before him. He is the creator. He has the power over demons. He has the power over death. And this is meant to, make, this is meant to fall on the insiders who are in the boat with him to listen, but it doesn't relieve them of their fear. You have to understand this. It actually increases their fear. Who is Jesus? You see, who he is lays claims on what his disciples are meant to be. You see, because he is the creator who has led them into a storm, that means in our discipleship, we are meant to walk with him in the midst of storms, not run from them. You see, storms are not only meant to reveal our faith or our lack of faith, they are actually meant to increase our faith and help us grow. You see, often after we we realize that we lack the faith to endure a storm, our faith grows because we have come face to face with the grips of the reality that we can't walk in a storm. We can't do it without him. You see, throughout this story, Mark has given you clues as to the purpose of this miracle. This story is told from the perspective of the disciples, and this is really interesting. It is the disciples who take Jesus into the boat in verse 36. It is the disciples who wake him up in verse 38. It is the disciples who are afraid in verse 41. It is the disciples who ask the, 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 the clarifying question and disturbing question, who then is this? Who can make the sea bow before him? You see, this is unusual of Mark. As you study Mark, you will discover that that Mark normally writes as as an anonymous narrator. But here in this story, he is writing from the vantage point of the disciples. He is writing in the eye of the storm on the disciples' behalf as they panic and accuse Jesus of forsaking them. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because we often do the same thing, right? In the middle of the storm, we, we get overwhelmed and we start accusing God. And Mark's original audience would soon find themselves in a real storm. They will find themselves in this story. You see, the early disciples, the first recipients of this letter, would soon face evil and persecution and torture under Emperor Nero from 64 to 68 AD. And like the disciples in this story, Mark's first readers may have thought God to be distant or indifferent to them during their suffering or hardship. But that is not true. The story was given given to them to, to show them that they are not alone in the storm. That just as Jesus was in the boat with them, he is with us in our storms. Listen, he didn't promise, he didn't promise an easy life full of prosperity, health, and, and, and great things. He promised a life full of storms. But he promised that he would be in the middle of in that storm with us, which then will bring clarity to the question that Jesus asks in verse 40. Why are you afraid? I am with you. Why Why are you afraid, disciples? Jesus says, I am with you. The disciples may indeed be insiders, but they still don't understand who they're dealing with. You see, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples the same way he rebukes the storm, right? It's not a lack of knowledge. He rebukes them for a fear. He rebukes them because they're afraid. He rebukes them for being afraid. In the Greek, the word actually means losing heart or being a coward. 
The real threat to their faith and your faith at advancing the gospel comes not because of a lack of knowledge. It comes because you're a coward. That's what he's saying. The reason why you stop walking into the storm to advance the gospel is because you're a coward. You see, storms reveal our faith or our lack of faith. Mark concludes our story this morning with a question that is a doorway to faith. The disciples have stepped into the presence of a holy God and they are trembling. And listen, this would not be the last time that that a disciple would tremble before his mighty acts, right? In in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, the woman will stand there in terror as, as Jesus is not there. You see, notice how the terror of the disciples increases because of what Jesus has just done. Their initial fear of the storm has been, has been suppressed, but the fear of the Lord has increased. Who is Jesus? He is still revealing himself to them, the disciples, right now. He is revealing himself to them slowly. But listen, these disciples were not, they were more prepared. They were more prepared to deal with their own death than they were to deal with Jesus as he, as he revealed who he really was. You see, in this case and in some situations when we draw near to God, it is not something that is reassuring. It's actually something that is terrifying. Who is Jesus? Like, who is Jesus? Well, he is the one who makes the sea bow before him. He is the one who has the power over death itself. This is the same question that is asked in Mark chapter 1, verse 27 by the crowd. Who then is this? Who can heal like this? Who can teach like this? And now the question has been uttered by the insiders, by the disciples. Who is this? You see, following the Exodus, the the chosen people of God had the same question, right? As God revealed himself to them, it filled them with fear, but that fear led them to trusting him. Listen to Exodus chapter 14, verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. Whenever they saw the mighty acts of the Lord against the Egyptians, the people of God feared the Lord, and that caused them to draw closer to the Lord and trust in him. The question before the disciples right now in Mark is this. In the midst of the storm, who do you fear most? Do you fear the storm, or do you fear the God who controls the storm, the God who brought you into the storm? And does that fear lead you to putting trust in him? You see, storms will reveal our faith or our lack of faith. Let me ask you a question. What storms are you going through right now? Church, what storms are you going through? Are these storms revealing your lack of faith or your faith? Which one? Let me say it to you again. What storms are you going through right now? And are they revealing your faith or your lack of faith? And what do you do about it? How do you fix it? If, if the storm that you're going through right now was just like the disciples where you failed the test, how do you fix this? Well, it's a simple process because they fixed it in verse 41. You see, the fear of the Lord needs to be greater than your fear of the storm because this will lead you to putting trust in the God who controls the storm. So practically, what does that mean for you? Well, from the text, let's just dive a little bit deeper to see what's actually going on. First, the disciples. The first, let's see this. The disciples are in awe of Jesus's power, right? They are in awe. They have seen the sea bow before its creator, and now they are aware that they are in the presence of God. But then Jesus asks them a question. We'll get to it in a minute. Let me show you how this works, though. In the text, we see the disciples, right? The seas obey him. God is revealed, right? In Exodus chapter 19, thunder and lightning scream down the mountain, and the text tells us that it reveals who God is, and there's a great trembling fear that fall over the people of God because they are afraid. To properly fear the Lord, you need to tremble before his mighty power. 
You see, to properly fear the Lord, you need to understand that he controls the wind. He controls the seas. He controls the earth. He controls everything. And if you understand that rightly, that should cause you to shake and tremble. And likewise, um, nature also does this to us, right? It makes us tremble. As we hear the thunder roll through the air, we see the lightning shock the sky like it makes us tremble before our Creator. But next, next, to rightly fear the, the Lord, you need to understand that He is angry over sin. Notice that the, the, the root of their lack of faith is found in sin. Look at verse 40. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? No faith? Jesus said, do you still have no faith, which is sin? Romans 14, 23 makes that clear, that to do anything outside of faith is sin. The fear that the disciples have right now because of the storm is a lack of faith in God. That is sin. And so to rightly fear the Lord, we must recognize that God is angry over their sin. And in a real way, he will punish those who stand against him and have no faith. It is a bad thing to fall into the hands of an angry God who is angry over your sin. And the disciples have just done that. They have sinned. They have shown their lack of faith. Right In, in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews acknowledges that God's coming vengeance and judgment will come against those who have no faith. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And the disciples have just done that. They have fallen into the hands of the living God, the one who can make the sea bow before him, and they have fallen into his hands because they have demonstrated that they have no faith. And so how do we make our faith? How do we, how do we, how do we make our fear of the Lord greater than our fear of the storm? How do we actually have faith? Well, we need to first recognize and trust that he is the one who controls the storm. But second, we need to let our faith lead us back to him and understand this. Like if you're like me, right, if you're like me, then you have failed over and over and over in the storm. Over and over and over. But I want, you to, I want to show you some, someone who didn't. I want to show you someone who didn't fail in the middle of the storm. You see, not, not too long after this text was written, the Son of God would walk right into the largest storm in the universe. A storm that would take his own life. And being fully aware of that storm, he didn't fight back. He didn't throw punches he didn't scream. He didn't yell. No, he let them lead him up to a hill called Golgotha and they stapled him to a cross and they hung him there for hours while he, while he endured the full storm and mighty wrath of God himself. You see, during the Passion, Jesus never lost faith. He's not like you and he's not like me and he's not like these disciples. He never lost faith. He knew that God was angry over sin and he knew what he had to do about it. He had to walk into the storm and endure it on my behalf and on yours. And because Jesus never lost faith, we can trust in him in the middle of our storms. You see, this is what he's trying to teach us. In the middle of our storms, we will fail. Our faith will be shallow, we will fail, but then we can always turn and look back to the one who never failed. So church, I want you to see the truth of this text this morning. This storm actually revealed Jesus' faith. This storm was a precursor to the coming storm of Golgotha. So Jesus' faith is real. We can put our faith in him. Thank you for listening to this message. If you would like to know more about Jesus, the gospel, discipleship, or Disciples Church, you can contact me at ChristopherHogue at Yahoo.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-O-G-U-E at Yahoo.com. Church, we have been sent into the world to make disciples. Let's go make disciples.